Hey there, it's Lisa from the Culinary Chronicles podcast. On this show, I will interview people from all walks of life about their food experiences and culinary journeys. Food, feeding my loved ones, sharing meals, and the conversations and love that fill the table are what this podcast is all about. My father was a butcher, my uncle a baker, and my grandmother's after-school snacks were always a delightful Sicilian treat. I've always celebrated with food and found gathering around a table the most amazing feeling in the world. Culinary Chronicles is my way of sharing this love of food with you. I hope this podcast fills your cup with entertaining tales about the love of food. Hello and welcome to the show, wonderful Chef Anna Olson. I'm so excited to have you here. You've been one of our, our culinary idols since the beginning and we have your cookbooks in our kitchen and I guess the first thing is just introduce yourself and tell everyone that's listening who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, uh, I'm just me. Anna Olson and I, my culinary journey has been not a straight line path. That's for certain. It's been a bit of a winding road. So when I'm asked what I do, it's hard to define. And I had someone once describe it as when they were actually trying to do a brand analysis and they said, it sounds like you have a collection of hobbies. And it feels like that on most days. I feel lucky that I get to enjoy what I do. And that I think what I like most about what I do is no two days are alike. There is no routine and I thrive in that environment. And does it feel like work? Because I always say it doesn't feel like I'm working because I love my like my business and my job. I don't feel like it's working. Oh, that's it. Yeah, there's no, the difference between a Monday and a Friday, it, there's no change of psyche. It's it's all fun. And what are we tackling today? And what do I get to cook? What do I get to talk about? What do I get to write? And and it's that fact that there's a variety. There's no one thing. Well, there there is one thing I do, because I write recipes and publish cookbooks, my least favorite thing to do. Glad we're jumping on this right off the top, but <laughs> make it light and easy. Right? <laughs> you know, well, it's fine to sit there and just spew flowers and roses. It's all perfect. I am horrible at typing. I really out of taking typing in in my day it was offered as a class, grade nine and ten, and it was meant yeah. to be for secretarial experience. And that was the women's live in me is like. Darn it, I'm not going to learn how to type because I don't want to I don't want to be a secretary. Well, now we all use keyboards and I am my emails and my copy is always riddled with typos. So typing recipes is Are actually, you a one finger typer? No, I I, you can I do have the... no, it's I, I use my whole hand, but not in a systematic way. And I get one letter off and the whole thing is just garbled. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love creating the recipes. And then when it comes time to document them and I've tried the dictation apps. And I know you're supposed they to... don't they don't work. They don't. Well, I've heard you're supposed to train them, but they're mostly designed for the legal and medical field. So when you say something like uh, need the dough for seven minutes by hand, it will change K-N-E-A-D to N-E-E-D. And so I spend more time fixing Going all that, yeah. the culinary <laughs> yeah 
That's interesting because my girlfriend said her son uses that for all his schooling. And I'm like, oh, my God, that'd be amazing because I like I find my hands are getting a little bit worn. So I'm like, maybe that would be good. But if it doesn't really, really dictate. Uh, that was a while ago. So maybe I just need to try it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I even tried. There was a, a series of notebooks that had a digital pen and you were supposed to be able to write in the notebook. And then it would translate to a Word document. And that, too, just was so garbled because the format, you you know, re a recipe has a format. You've got your ingredient list. You've got your numbered method. There's a and, and there is a rote style you develop. I have my terms, you know, on a lightly flowered surface, dusted with flour or on and on and on. So I just autopilot those. When I test recipes, I don't write method down. I don't need to. I have my ingredient list because that gets really finicky. And then I have all my texture notes and consistency notes and the the things I want to flag to the reader and then the bake time and temperature that, that is listed. But I, there's no method until I actually Do you have a template, like a document that has all the things you can't finish unless you no, it all? No, I Oh, you have a notebook. Oh, I love this. I, <laughs> I love this. This is what it looks like. It just scribbles and it scrabbles. And no... I wish I had mine to show you the same. It's like the same. Yeah. But there, there's actually, it's, it's just lists of numbers. And then I always date an initial. So if someone were to say, oh, well, I think I came up with that recipe. I don't know why it's a paranoid side. If someone said, you know, I came up with that recipe. It's like, well, here it is. This is I where dated I started. I and I initialed and it. And then I keep a record. And so the date, the recipe has its progress. And then you've met my food stylist and recipe tester, Lisa Rolo, who that. she gets it after I've worked it up and actually typed. And then it gets retested. And then she sends it back to me with notes and photos and corrects all those typos. So how do you develop a recipe? Are you like out at dinner and you're like, oh, I love this like lemon chicken and I'm going to like try and make it at home? Or how do you come up with recipes, especially baking? That's so scientific. Well, that's a good question to ask, Lisa. When it comes to creating recipes, usually there is a mandate. Either I'm writing an article, I'm updating my website, I'm writing a book or uh, someone has requested something. So there's usually a purpose. And when it's more than just one recipe, coming up with, say, a, a cookbook outline is like writing a hundred item dessert menu, if it's a baking book, because you can't overlap or repeat too many flavors or methods or it's not balanced. So a balanced dessert menu will have, you know, that custard based dessert that cake a tart so you've got the different sort of foundations and then you work in different flavors so the custard is going to be a malted milk chocolate pot de creme the tart is going to be lemon with raspberry but you wouldn't overlap you wouldn't do a lemon raspberry pot de creme and a lemon raspberry tart so all right that's how you sort of come up with i almost do like a flow chart and so i start crossing off i have my lists of ingredients and things you start crossing them off once you come up with it in your outline, your, your first outline, and then you kind of work with what's left. So I may say, a, I'd like to make a cranberry white chocolate creme brulee with a ginger crisp. Sounds lovely. So what is it? I don't know. 
I just made it sound good. Then, so if I've caught your attention with the title, now I need to deliver on what expectation I built into that title. And so I know the basic ratio of how many egg yolks to cream I need to set a creme brulee. The method is rarely different, or I decide, do I want, do I want to include fresh cranberries in the creme brulee because they float in any custard? Or do I chop them up or do I do dried cranberries? And then that may dictate the method. So maybe instead of a baked creme brulee where the cranberries would float to the top, I'll do a stovetop method of creme brulee, put the cranberries in the dish and pour that over top and see what happens. So that's where I start fiddling and playing until I get that end result that I feel meets my expectations and what you as a reader cook would expect. So would you make it like three or four times in one day or would you think about it and just think about all the like different scientific things like you said and then do one or would you kind of make three or four and then look at them and go, oh, I like that look of that one or I think that one was easier or the timing was better? You know what? That's a really great question to ask. I have to switch it up. I I really only, unless I'm under a real time crunch, I will only do it once a day. So if I'm in the kitchen, I will test multiple recipes, but they will be different recipes because if I go on, uh, if I'm working on one so obsessively, I start going on autopilot and that's where I mismeasure or I'm, I'm not actually thinking it through. So if I'm working on that cranberry white chocolate creme brulee, I'll also work on a tart and a cake and a cookie. So then my mind is going to multiple techniques and methods versus the repeated. And yeah, you do. You stop thinking after a while, which I can't. And do you get into it? And then are you like a mad scientist till midnight and your husband's like, come on, come to bed? Or are you just like, I only recipe test in the morning till noon? Or what's your method? It, It can vary. I find I tend to... I'm a good list maker and that's the linear baker in me, I suppose. So I like to clear my desk of, I, I would rather even, as much as I don't like typing recipes, I would rather get them done first thing in the morning. So then they're done. Get, I get my emails and office work and deliverables. You know, if I'm doing cooking demos, I have to send recipes off. I try and get that done in the morning and then I can focus in the afternoon because anything that trickles in later in the day, I may, I can push to the next day. I do get a little obsessive that I can put my head down and not realize that uh, it's dinner time and all I have is cake in front of me. But I'm not, I'm not a, I've always been a morning person, so I'm more attentive and alert in the morning. So yeah, I'm, I'll, I'd rather stop, make dinner, which is using a different part of my brain regroup and then as I'm sitting watching Netflix and at night then the next idea is for oh you, you got to sit with it for a bit and yeah, then the changes yeah. start kind of coming into play and then I'll start again the next day yeah mine is the before bed lying in bed like before falling asleep lying in bed that's when all my ideas talk to me and marinate <laughs> in my brain and then I'm like oh okay and then I'm ready for the next day. But before I go to bed, that half hour, I don't even know how long it is. That's when I'm it like, just your, your mind is worrying away and coming yeah. up with the next ideas. All my all my well, thoughts get cleared in that period before bed. Which <laughs> I guess I sleep on and then figure out in the morning. But OK, so you've done all your recipe testing. 
And now you're married to like a fantastic chef. Who cooks? Like, how do you, does it just happen naturally? Or is it like he cooks weekends or how does that work in your house? Oh, it's pretty even. It's, uh, it's quite often dependent on uh, our, our schedules because we both enjoy cooking. And usually our morning conversation is about what we want to have for dinner. And so if one of us is, quite often we want something not necessarily because it's what we want to eat, but what's what we're in the mood to make. So if one of us sort of takes, puts dibs on making dinner, we do. Otherwise, it just follows a natural schedule. If I'm, you know, even before the pandemic, my test kitchen was here and my home office was here in my home. So if he's, teaching at Niagara College and has a lab until 5.30, well, I'll take the lead on dinner. And if I'm on the road because I have an event in Toronto, he'll take the lead on dinner. And then on weekends, we just putter and cook together. So what is fun is because we cooked as a couple professionally before we even became a couple, we know how to do that dance in the kitchen because we have each other's you know, of, of a kitchen brigade, he's meats and sauces, I'm entremetier and desserts. And then we do share the cleanup equally. We are oh, good that that's good. I no one. I don't like the cleanup, but yeah, I like to sweep and vacuum, but I don't like the dishes part. I'm, so you tell us about how you met and you were working together first. Tell us a little bit more about that. Were you, yeah. was there sparks flying in the kitchen? Well, that's a funny question to ask, Lisa. I, I don't remember, both Michael and I were so busy doing our jobs at first. I don't know if we noticed, I don't know if we knew to separate the sparks of passion for what we were doing for sparks of passion for Ooh, each other. I love that. And it might have been, it might have been a bit of both that brought us together. Ultimately, we were both so excited to be doing what we're doing. The restaurant was in its infancy at that point. It had just grown to to open an event space and an inn across the street before it was just an a la carte restaurant. So we, we, yeah, we had an opportunity. We had our heads down. We were excited. We were caught up in the moment, but it wasn't just being caught up in the moment that brought us together, though it was that common interest and love and excitement for being in the region at the cusp of it growing into I mean, what you see of it now, it, there were a fraction of the wineries at that time. We were only one of three winery restaurants in the entire region. On the 20 was the first to get its um, sort of winery license to, to open a restaurant. Then it was Vineland and Trias came after that. And then came the explosion of wineries. So I think it was just that that excitement created a spark that then I think when we finally had time to look up, it was like, hey, you're cute. You too. <laughs> oh. And you're kind of cute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But were you kind of like commiserating at the end of the day? Like, oh my God, that was so tough or that was so amazing or so like. Yeah, constantly. Were you always really close? Okay. Yep. Yeah, we had to be. You know, we were co-creating menus together. And then, I mean, what ultimately we were together when our first cookbook came about. And that was an organic process because as, again, the pastry chef, the linear thinker, it fell on my shoulders when guests, you know, this is before, well, years before social media, but 
even before people were emailing a lot, that they would leave a request to have a recipe mailed to them for one of the dish dishes. So I would be the one to make sure things were documented. And yeah, you know, great. Back to the typing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guest. Yeah. And so it turned out the first book came about because we looked at this database of recipes we had acquired over probably about five or six years of working together. And we said, well, oh, this would be a really cool book. And that's how that whole process started. I didn't intend to write cookbooks, but then when that task came about, I just loved it. I loved that process. And then adapting a restaurant recipe to turn it into a home cook friendly recipe was that was my first jump into speaking to a home cook audience okay in sharing uh professional culinary expertise and then it's interesting what it evolved from there so at that point now michael and i are an item we spent a few years living together and we got married in 99 and around that time was when I realized, I, while I loved working in a pastry kitchen, you're very removed from your contact with your customer. Other than uh, bridal consulta consultations for wedding cakes, you know, I'm in at five in the morning. I'm not seeing people who eat my desserts at nine o'clock at night. And so I, in order to remain connected, I, I got to know a few customers and then would offer to go host cooking classes in their home. So oh, basically, that's how it started. They okay. would invite six friends over and then we would all be in the kitchen cooking together. And so I got, I wanted a better understanding of how a home cook cooks. How are their kitchens set up? How, how do they work? How do they not work? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then that really helped me shape my recipe writing style and understanding what I could ask of a home cook in terms of ingredients and tools and feasibility and what they, and then when you saw that sense of satisfaction, when they made this entire meal, a multi-course meal, that's how I drew my satisfaction. I realized, okay, it's not about my ego and what I can show you that you can do. And I know you see this I with know, your yeah. classes all the time. It's when you see that light bulb go off and someone figures out how to mask a cake and they, they just all of a sudden their hand motion switches and there's a grace to the way they work and that satisfaction they feel it's like I did it yeah it's that's where the fulfillment is and I'm sure you see this all the time or you saw that when you were teaching was we get students all the time saying oh I'm not creative I can't do this I'll never I've never baked I'm, and then after two hours they've created something they're so proud of themselves they're so they're mm -hmm. beaming because they've accomplished something and you're like okay that's why I do this job because that is yep. that's the satisfaction they they're leaving with a beautiful lemon tart and meringues that are perfectly torched and you're just mm -hmm. like yeah you could do this and you like people can do stuff that they think they see yeah. at restaurants and they're like I can never make that at home like yeah you can it's quite like simple for you know us to say but it's simple yeah and I know it it reduces the effort of a recipe to say it's all right there it's yeah. in the recipe there's what you need and there's what to do but we do have to acknowledge there is a little more <laughs> there's more to it there's that and that's where when I go through a recipe I like to give lots of those visual clues or warn people if 
you know, people have questions like adding melted butter. Well, do you have to cool the butter to room temperature or is warm okay? So I like to be very clear. Yes. Using it warm is okay yes. or make sure you cool it. And then if you see this happen, yeah, this is how to fix it. Because 90% of baking is knowing how to prevent a disaster or how to, how to get out of it once you it accidentally happens. And using the senses. And I found when I first started baking, I found all these recipes and cookbooks, which were beautiful, like beautiful coffee table books. But it would say stuff like, for example, I don't know if this is still, you know, this is just an example, but like soft butter. What's soft? Like soft, 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 mushy, soft, melted. Like, mm -hmm. Or I would, I remember trying to pipe a rosette and I could find all these YouTube videos and they'd be like piping. But they never said how to fill the bag or the consistency of the buttercream or the angle. And it was just like, I just watched, I remember hundreds of YouTube videos and I could never find one that piped a rosette to teach me. And I, I was like, I said always like, there's steps missing in recipes. And so yeah, recipe testing, yeah. and especially your cookbooks are tested because I think a lot of recipes aren't tested. And we even had this issue, we, we put a recipe in our newsletter and we do it all the time at our studio, but we miss a step in the right. And like... <laughs> What happened? You know, out yeah. of all our subscribers, only two women were like, there's steps missing. I'm like, oh gosh. Like, we just assume, you know, add the dry ingredients, but we just didn't say add the dry ingredients, which, so there's so many things yeah. that I think home cooks get a bad deal with there when they're trying to get stuff from the internet or from some, you know, beautiful types of cookbooks that are not tested. Yeah. And then the onus is on the author to test it. It's not the publisher's responsibility because when an editor is reviewing a recipe, you or I as cooks could look at, I can look at a recipe. I'm sure you can. And you, and you see it and you're like, that's not going to work. Yeah. But an editor is there to correct your grammar and spelling and make sure the formatting is consistent throughout the book, but yeah. they can't know if a recipe is or isn't going to work correctly. And they're not chefs, yeah. No, no. So tell me more about like the process of creating a cookbook. Because I did a big research trip to Sicily where my family's from and I wrote down all these recipes, but I've never done anything with them because a daunting, mm -hmm. like when you said that was your first foray into starting cookbooks, like how the you said you have a process and how does one <laughs> start or what's like your kind of method? Well, it, it first of all, I'm amazed that since my first book to now, the process, while more technically simple and easy, is really still the same. And it still takes two years to pull a book together. Wow. So you've got, yeah, like I said, the, the first part is writing the outline. And that's like writing a hundred item menu. So you've got your balance in there. And then that really helps you. And it, it, it is not a static being. So even though I submit that to the publisher, it goes through many versions mm -hmm. through as I get testing, because I'll start down one path in a recipe and I'll realize, oh, well, this method doesn't relate to anything else. And it, this recipe doesn't connect. So let's cut it. Or I'll add things going, oh, there's a missing element here there's a component I, I forgot to think of so that gets added and you just you start so it takes being very regimented in terms of a testing schedule and when I've talked to other first-time authors it it's always a surprise to them and I have to point out how that book always occupies a part of your brain until even it's when done. you're not actually working on it yeah 
And the intention when you're given a year, you're given. So the first year of the two year process, you're given to work on the recipes, to write the manuscript, potentially work on the photos at the same time. It depends on the schedule. So all of that is happening at the same time. So you're do, you, in Canada, it's not, it doesn't replace a full-time job. So you fit it into your life's activities. So that's why you give yourself the time. So there are times where you think, I've got three whole days. I'm just going to go nuts and I'm going to work on six to 18 recipes right now. And then you pull back and you need some separation and then you go back to it. Maybe it's a week later or two weeks or a month later. And you you just work through all those recipes until you have something cohesive. As a, a newer author, you would send in some of your copy early on. Uh, to be reviewed so that you know your formatting is correct and you're on the right track to save you time so later like the story Net. behind the recipe or the actual recipe because you mean what's the formatting uh, a bit of both okay. so you come up with you don't have to worry about design at this point but every recipe has to have its introduction which that can be the personal side okay. you don't have to have the actual information you've got your yield serving prep time cook time you've got the ingredient list the method and then depending on the style of the book you can have little pop-out boxes with tips or recipe related notes or a joke whatever it is oh, that's your okay. thing you can add that in so that usually the the publisher wants to sort of get a look at that first because if your writing style is not driving with contemporary format they'll they'll just give you some guidance and advice to get you going and then yeah the photos are another process and so do they send you a photographer if, or do you do it yourself or what's the expectation well, you can put bids out to tender i've been working with a photographer on my last three to four projects so photographers will bid on the work and the the photographer i work with is based out of vancouver janice nikolai she's amazing she was recommended to me and I just met her at one event and we just clicked oh, and I nice. just knew we would work. And it was interesting. The first day she arrived, um, she barely had any equipment and it threw me. You're like, where she is just everything? had her little camera bag with some lenses. And I'm like, where are the lights? Where are all the stands and everything? And she is just a magician with manipulating light. Wow. So she shoots. She has no light. No light? No, barely any added light. And she can just by she knows her lenses and her aperture settings. So she can be shooting at four o'clock on a winter afternoon here and make it look, look like a summertime morning. Wow. Um, just the way she work the lens and she can really play with her depth of field. And then I have a prop stylist who comes in and just takes over the we block shoot our photos now this doesn't go, happen to everybody we block shoot because she's coming in from vancouver yeah i was gonna say does she come well, for a week or how long would it take to shoot for a week and we plan to pack in as many photos as we can in that week she stays with us and then my prop stylist comes in from toronto will take over the living room and set it up with all the plates and the platters and the forks and the glasses and the baking dishes and so it's like walking through a store when you say, okay, we're going to shoot this chocolate cake with a Swiss meringue buttercream on it. Okay, so let's look at our cake stand. And we'll have predetermined sort of the mood and the style of the photographs. 
And then she'll say, well, I think we should put it on the pink stand. And then, okay, we're going to shoot the whole cake or a slice. Well, I think we should shoot both because we're going to have both. So you have both options. So usually most photos have two to three options that the designer then selects. So there is always an excess of photos because now it's digital. When we shot that very first book in 1999, it was on film. It was crazy. Oh, wow. He shot three to four food photos in one day. And the only reason, and we would take a Polaroid first and then evaluate the Polaroid and then take a the tiny film photo Polaroid. Yep. And then you wouldn't know maybe a week later and we'd lose shots and have to reshoot stuff. But that was in the day. Early books would only have oh, a couple um, photos. First book. I would totally redesign that cover again. It's had blocks of, so you've got all no, oh, no color photos. You would have an insert of two pages, four images. Oh my gosh. Of color photos and that's it like woohoo close up on soup <laughs> that was and that took forever to shoot that and so now oh of gosh. course it's so easy everybody i mean everybody what's fascinating though is because everybody does take photos of food not everyone is a food photographer and it I takes agree. an eye and it takes a combination of eyes so while i have amy and lisa who do the bulk of sort of they're in the back kitchen doing all the base cake making and foundation work. I do the final assembly. And then food styling is not really like for a cookbook, food styling is not a thing. Well, it is a thing, but it's not overly touched or art directed. You make the cake as per the recipe. I never cheat. Like, why would I cheat on scale and scope and color? Because if I put a photo out and then you as the baker see that photo and say, well, I want to make that recipe and you make it and it's half the size or not the right color, well, yeah. I've just set myself, yeah. you know, you, you deserve to be mad at me for that. So I, it's an accurate reflection. So I don't mind if it's not perfect. I want it to make it Feel, aspirational yeah. as it can be for what it is, but I'm not going to fake anything out. But, you know, that's, that's for the whole world of. TV commercials and yeah, Wendy Horton so when you like that. Well, so when you do a proposal, does the publisher come to you and say, "Hey, Anna, we want a cookbook about like the desserts of the south of France. We want to be bright and summery and fresh, and we want like five photos per recipe." Or do you say to them, "Hey, I publisher, I want to do a cookbook about you know Spain and like make it all like rustic and dark and purpley and like." How does who does what? Is it a dance? Is it by the time you you've done so many cookbooks like you, you can present ideas, or do they say there's a gap in the market for like a Moroccan couscous cookbook? Like how does how does that happen? It's a combination. That's a very good question to ask. And if anyone is listening and interested in publishing a cookbook, it is you're essentially pitching a small business to a publisher, or if you are self-publishing you are opening your own small business, which is a cookbook. And you know, Lisa, how hard that is to do. I would not recommend the latter. (laughs) Well, and that's an interesting point because people think, well, it'll be easier. There'll be more money in it if I self-publish. 
but it's like trying to self-finance your small business versus publisher is the bank. And so if you talk to the publisher, you are ultimately, you're bringing your idea to the table because you've got that expertise in category X. And, but you have to sell them on it. You have to convince the publisher that they need to print it because they're taking the onus of the financial responsibility. So they need to know who's going to buy it. Why are they going to buy it? How many will they buy? Are you going to be able to sell it differently than another book? What sets your book apart from other? And then there is a part that does relate to timing because a publisher is not going to pick six bread baking books to publish in one season. They'll spread it out, but that's their own agenda. And they they all know each other and they keep tabs on what's coming in the industry. So they, but they'll guide you. If they think you've got potential, they'll guide you. Never, ever write the whole book and then think you can give that to a publisher. What you want to do is come up with that idea, that outline of recipes and a sample of writing. And maybe if you've got an interest in a style or a look, give that to them. But you don't have to, if you spend all that time, they could end up saying, well, we can't use it. And then, so what like a five do? or six page document that you email over nice PDF or you mail in the post. And... Yep. It's a nice sampling of your work and they want to see who you are and, you know, what makes you the expert in this category? Why are you going to make a book on lemon cookies? Yeah. Why you? Um, and who, why does the world need a book on lemon cookies? Yeah. And so then they'll they'll guide you and then you may decide, well, no, I, I want to do it on my own, but you have to recognize that part of the process, I was just talking about that first year of recipe writing. The only cost you're taking on is your own time, cost of ingredients. It's the onus is on you if you want to hire a recipe tester or just rely on your own efforts. Photographer, stylist, or are you going to do your own? But then if you want a book that is credible, that you have to pay for and a regular editor, a copy editor, you've got your graphics and design layout. Then you have to figure out who's going to print it. How are you going to store all those copies and who's going to distribute the book? And then there's the marketing and PR because that just doesn't happen That's by itself. Huge, so yeah. when you add up all that, those expenses, the cost of paper these days, whoo! Yeah. I, the shortage I of paper. Found a, <laughs> well, there's a shortage, yes. But a lot of uh, new authors who self-published were caught by surprise. They got through everything, and it was the storage and distribution that was the hardest. You know, they had this great book, but they had to pay. You have to pay rent to store it. It takes up a lot of room. And then how do you get it to people yeah. effectively? Yeah. Well, so, that's, yeah. That's a That's big issue. Is people can get stuff on the shelves, but you have to sell them. So yeah, getting it into yeah. the bookstore is great, but then you got to move copies. So that marketing and sales and promotions. You have and, to, yeah, people have to know it's there yeah. to be per- purchased. And so, you know, what's great about publishing in Canada is there are publishers knowing that our market is small. So bigger name publisher will have some big name titles that help finance the, the fact that they can take on smaller titles without the anticipation. They don't need to make a million dollars off of every book, but they will balance the funding because they believe in supporting small local authors. I'm, I'm turning my head because I'm looking at 
my publisher just sent me some new releases of books. I haven't even cracked this Who's open. That? So this is not, it's not an endorsement yet. It is Where the Rift Narrow. But it is from um, just, it, yeah, a smaller author. St. Lawrence Restaurants, Timeless Dishes of Quebec and France. I can't wait to dive Ooh, into nice. this. But, you know, you don't have to be Yotam Autolenghi to come up with a book. And maybe they won't print tons of copies. And what I think a lot of new authors get caught up on is how many print runs you have. Well, now these days they do small print runs and they do them more frequently. So your print, if it's no to, to say, oh, I'm in my third printing actually doesn't say a whole lot. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and so they don't have to pay for uh, the rent to store them for too much. But longer. what does a, you're not doing a cookbook to make money, right? It's more for the passion and no. sharing. Because I've heard that a lot of times. You don't make cookbooks to make money. You do it to kind of, you know, just share your passion and share your ideas and recipes. And mm -hmm. and to enjoy the journey. And it does become a good calling card. Because I will say that very first cookbook we did was my calling card, you know, because I started doing media to promote that book, that got me into television way back in the very mm -hmm. beginning. And I don't know that the television side of what I do would have happened without the cookbook at yeah. all. And I was the one between Michael and I, I was the one who hated being on camera. I was the head down. I'll do really? the demo. Oh, my gosh. You're so me. good oh, on yes. camera. <laughs> I am a uh, what's it called? Ambivert. With the introvert, extrovert, yeah. I, I'm an introvert by nature, but I have become comfortable with public speaking. And as you can tell, I can just ramble Television, <laughs> during a yeah. podcast. Yeah. But it's taken 20 plus years to be relaxed and comfortable at it. I, love that. I still get nervous. If I do a an orchestrated, planned cooking show, when the director yells action, I still get butterflies in my stomach. It's like the first day I've done it. If you're interested in learning the baking basics behind making swoon-worthy cakes, I invite you to join our six-week online cake and buttercream course, which can be taken from anywhere in the world. Class starts every other month, and in these classes, you will make new connections and learn new baking and cake decorating skills. With weekly live Zoom meetings with our chefs, you will discuss your progress and your homework, and you will be on the road to becoming the cake decorator you've always dreamt of being. Training from our expert chefs teach you proven foolproof cake basics. This course is broken down into three different parts. Part one, cake. You will learn the science of baking cakes and test on your skills by baking six different recipes. Part two, buttercream. You will dive deep into the wonder of buttercreams testing out the most popular icing. Part three, decorating essentials. You will learn to stack, mask, and comb your cake to perfection. This space is filled with supportive, collaborative interaction and access to a fully immersive learning experience to transform the way you bake. You can find the link to join our classes in the show notes and use podcast 20 for 20% off. I look forward to baking with you. So tell us more about your, your, where can people see you now? So you're on YouTube. Tell us about that. How does that come about? Because I always thought YouTube was for like teenagers and I don't know, pop <laughs> videos, but you have a great YouTube channel. Like how do you come up with content yes. for that? The, well, what's amazing is with all of the linear content, the television content I did for Food Network, Bake with Anna Olson, 
it turned out to translate very well to YouTube because it was designed to be easy, safe, internationally friendly. I actually intentionally don't bake with uh, spirits or use pork. So anyone can watch. It's kid-friendly, entertaining. And what the channel management company did was actually break down my half-hour episodes into single recipes. And those all of a sudden resonated. And then when the pandemic hit, I wasn't doing a lot of live work, but the channel manager said, this might be a great opportunity. We're all stuck at home. People seem to, and he said, your numbers are going up. I think people are home watching baking videos. Like, okay. We started doing some lives and that has become now a very big part of it. And now I've, I've learned so much. And part of our getting through the pandemic without being able to go to a set to tape a TV show like we used to, I ended up converting uh, an old apartment in the back of our house to a studio kitchen. And then Michael, as a lifetime learner, decided he was going to take on the technology side. So now we have it set up with 4K Blackmagic cameras, pro lighting, pro sound. And he's my DOP. <laughs> so I saw his again, post one day. I'm like, why is he doing that? And he just loves the yeah. techie side. <laughs> he just loves it. So once again, we're working together in the kitchen, but in a completely different capacity than we were 25 years ago. That's it's amazing. Crazy. Okay. But we love it. So we've, we've created, getting back to traveling is something that's been very important to me. And so we have now created a series that ties the excitement and adventure of travel. And we always pick our des destinations based on food. But I know my YouTube audience likes me doing recipes in my home kitchen. And I get so inspired by travel, we thought, let's bring those two together. So Anna's Food Travel Diaries, a seven-part series just finished launching. So it's really just new content out there where I, I've been to Istanbul, Milan, and we did an ep episode in Yuma, Arizona, harvesting medjool dates, which was fascinating. Oh. So that was fun to bring together. And then I'm continuing the live streams. So just we pick dates usually once or twice a month. And that's a different audience because the, the people who like to watch my single, you know, six and a half minute recipe videos may not be the same people that will watch a live stream. But um, what you get is that engagement, that immediate engagement. Yeah. I'm watching this thread. I'm looking at your questions. I'm trying to answer them as I go along. So for me, that replaced the live audience, which I didn't have over yeah. the last few years. So what's your typical week like? Because are, are you doing cookbooks and TV and, you know, live? There is like, no TV. Yeah, okay. Week. I figured as much. Well, <laughs> and on the time of year. And I do have my seasonal highs and lows. Just like the restaurant business and the baking business, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter how good your cupcakes are in January. The bakery is always quiet yeah. in January. I know. I'm not looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. But then, you know, yes, there's Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Valentine's yes. Day, Mother's Day. I'm already planning all those fun things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I bet you are. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you, you pile it on for Christmas and then, yeah, and then it becomes really quiet for a bit. But then you gear up and then summer gets quiet again. But then... Yeah, you're back to the holiday season. So it does vary between at-home work, developing recipes and doing communications. There's the travel component that I'm now budgeting 
blocks of time for. And then hosting culinary tours is something else. Tell me about that because you just came back from a few trips and one of my favorite customers has been on a few of your trips Mm -hmm. and she keeps telling me, you have to come and every time I go, they're sold out. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to get on one of these trips. So tell us about that. Oh, we've got a couple. We've got spaces left on the current two. So March 1st to 8th, we're hosting a culinary tour of Mexico City, which I think is exciting. That has been on my bucket list for a long time. To do the deep dive, you know, what most of us learn uh, in terms of Mexican cooking is actually Tex-Mex, yeah, which is real. It's a real style, but it is not authentic Mexican Mexico cooking. And that's what I can't wait to learn about. And just the ancient history of this city is phenomenal. So to tour the markets and the sites, and then we have multiple cooking classes, books, and Delicious dinners from high-end Michelin star dinners to a street tour, street food tour. I just, I can't wait. And then the next tour, you just came back from Sicily, but we are going to Sicily May 20th to 27th. So that's a seven-day tour. And yeah, the deal is we keep our groups really small. We max out at 16 people plus the travel coordinator. And sometimes it's just me or it's Michael and myself. Because we want to be able to fit in a small vehicle so we can get into, you know, how small those yeah, roads oh are. Yeah. So you can get places where you have to breathe you know, in. Like, you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Not gonna fit if, on you're on a cruise, <laughs> if you're on a big ship on a cruise, you won't get to these small towns and you won't get to see these small producers. And then also we can get into the better restaurants with better menus. Because also get- all the restaurants in Sicily are like. 10, 12 seats, 15 seats. They're tiny. They're all in these tiny old, you know, 100 year old plus. We'll take over the whole restaurant when we go as a group, but we'll keep it small and intimate. So that's the idea. And and it's not one of those tours where, uh, you know, I show up to two events or three events. We are with you the whole time. You might be sick of us, but honestly, your favorite customer we were friends now. So we email. She came over this summer. We had a good visit with other travelers had a nice little time on our porch in the summertime we stay in touch we meet each other at events we, yeah yeah we stay in touch so you build this nice so bond with people and you travel yeah, and they're like amazing people and they love food as much as you do so you have so much in common tell me about the trip oh, that you yeah. took was it parma where did tell us about your last two trips because i love seeing yeah. all of the photos and i was like oh this is an amazing food tour the, the two trips for 2022, which were exciting. The first one was the first post-pandemic trip. And we picked Parma uh, specifically in the Emilia-Romagna region of Italy because we knew, we didn't know with where re- regulations were, if we had to quarantine, because often we would move hotels a couple of times during the tour. We thought, let's stay in one place. And in Parma, you can see so much within an hour's drive of, that beauty and the city itself is beautiful. So that was a good place to start. So we saw prosciutto being made. We went to a Parmigiano Reggiano facility. We went to see balsamic in Modena. Oh, we dream. went up into the hillside. Like it was just, yeah, into the country, into cities. And are you filming um, this at the same time for your your viewers who are around the world? Or is this more not? Uh, that, no, okay. we just, we keep it within our group. 
And then the fall trip was Madrid and Seville. So it was, we needed to get to Spain. And so it was great to go from the big city, which we all as, as a group was like, that was fun and exciting. But the minute we got to Seville, it was a little more calm. Yeah. It was smaller. It was more manageable. We're like, okay, we're feeling the vibe. Yeah. So we loved the excitement for a few days. And then to get down to the south where everything was relaxed and about oranges and dates and almonds mm -hmm. and fish. And, oh, and the bocadillos, so all those little like perishable. Oh, yeah. I know. They're so good. So, so good. Uh, okay. So the next one is Mexico City. Yes. Okay. That's March 1st to 8th. And then Sicily is May 20th to 27th. And if you want to find out information, you yeah. can either go to my website. It's uh, AnnaOlson.ca. Or if you go, to, if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram, you'll see, you know, how everybody link has a link on yeah, the yeah. I'll add it in the show notes too. Yeah. Yeah. It pops up. So then you can click on the trip you oh, want. And God. so we use a travel coordinator. He speaks fluent Italian and Spanish. He's based out of Calgary. So he takes care of all the logistics and the organization of it. And then we plan together, we plan what those culinary excursions and cooking classes are going to be. So do you pre-go and do like a little bit of the tour or do you kind of set it up without testing all of this? It depends on location. Sometimes we know the spaces or have relationships. In Mexico City, I happen to work, my show airs on the cooking channel down there called El Gourmet. So... I was able to pre-screen and get approval. When we designed our tour, I ran it by the local, uh, my local contact there. It's like, are we on, you know, are we doing well we here? Bueno. And then, <laughs> yeah, bueno. and then I'll probably be doing some work for them before we go on the culinary tour. So, yeah, I try and, you know, make them at the trips as yeah. efficient as possible. And then Giovanni, the travel coordinator based in uh, Canada, he studied and built contacts. His business was connecting Europe and Canada together. Perfect. So he's got all the contacts to, to build that. things. Or if he doesn't, his contacts have contacts. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm going to add that in the show notes. I have, another, okay, I have another question. So coming back to you're in Welland, Niagara. What has you said there's been a huge change from when you started it in on the twenty. Tell, mm -hmm. tell people that don't live in, you know, Ontario, what this magical wine region is all about. Because my sister recently moved to Niagara-on-the-Lake and it's like, it's like a whole other world once you enter and you get off the busy, busy, you know, 10-lane highway. You're in this thing. There's, there's, you know, vines everywhere. I just feel like every time I drive to her house, it's like, like this, you know, can you tell us like as living, living there, someone who lives there, what's it? What's it like or where where should we go and eat and explore? Well, it's amazing. It's, you know, 90 minutes outside of Toronto. You drive around Lake Ontario, so you're only just 15 minutes from the U.S. border, depending on what side of the lake you're, you're on. And it is magical. And you just pointed out something, Lisa, that I do in the summertime. If I'm driving home from Toronto and after battling through traffic, I will get off at the Vineland exit 
just as you get into Niagara. That's what we do. And I'll roll down the windows and I just love the smell of the country drive. And all of a sudden the traffic slows down and you're driving past peach trees and orchards and apple trees and vineyards and fields of corn and soy and pumpkin. Well, you know, everything is there. It's just beautiful. And so, yes. The, the community of Niagara, is, the region as a peninsula, is made up of a collection of smaller towns. So you've got St. Catharines, Welland, Fort Colburn, Niagara-on-the-Lake, Niagara Falls. They're all each of their own identity, but everybody just kind of looks as the re at the region as a whole. And then it's, it's Greenbelt protected, hopefully, for some time to come. So the farming and agricultural side of things has just maintained and flourished. So you can't replace any agricultural land with anything commercial. That's so that land is protected and it's very, very important. So you've got the two wine pockets where if you need a frame of reference, if you've never been there, I would call Niagara on the lake and the wine region around there more like Napa, California, where the wine region around Vineland, Jordan, Beamsville is more the Sonoma. It's a little more low key, a little less flash. If you want the big winery tours and the big vintages and the big experience, you go to Niagara-on-the-Lake. But there's so much to do. It's very flat, which is why people like to bike but from winery to winery. You've got the theater circuit there, the old village, Victorian-style village, the beautiful homes. It really is quite a draw. Um, and, the people, and it is. It's magical. Yeah, the people are so different, too. I mean, I guess smaller town living, everyone is like, hello, and and helping mm -hmm. each other and the the community activities i just feel like it's taking it's like even a step back in time but just that community like my sister bikes to her neighbors and they pick up each other on their way to pick by the lake and it's just this mm -hmm. this this feeling of like everyone really supporting one another and living in this like really calmer energy that is just so conducive to like friendships and and relationships and like joining and being part of all of the volunteering for the grapes and the harvest and yeah I just feel like it's it's such a it's such a place that's undiscovered for so many city dwellers unless they go mm -hmm. there quickly drive go to a winery and come home but there's so much more to offer especially like you said in like the outer regions and Welland and Jordan. Yeah, I think everybody automatically thinks of the waterfall and going for a tour and bringing the kids but there yeah there is a much bigger sense of community and Things like the little, there there are the farmer mark, farmer's markets, but there are also the farm gate stands. So between Mother's Day and uh, Halloween, you'll find any number of like temporary stands set up where the local growers sell what they grow or they sell what their fellow growers who don't have farm gate stands grow. So in May, it's the rhubarb and the asparagus and the strawberries, and then in July, the cherries and apricots and raspberries, and then you get into the corn and zucchini and eggplant. So there's just this, that's where the excitement for me as a cook and you just move with the season. And so, you know, the idea of cooking when you, I'm asked, well, what's your style of cooking? It's, it's seasonally Canadian. And so I wouldn't dream of making a pot roast in July, but I'm very much down with making one now. And I'll buy local turnips and carrots. And yeah, so it's local seasonal and it tends to be what you're in the mood to make anyhow. It just fits. Yeah. And I think the one thing that surprised me the most and 
I've heard of these, but there's a farm stand near her house and it's an honesty box. So you can pick up a loaf of sourdough and some veggies and some root vegetables and just oh yeah, just put in, you know, what it says on the menu. And you're like, so amazing. <laughs> and that's when uh, we were early in the pandemic, when we thought it was only going to last two weeks. Oh, yeah. Six, I think it was six weeks. I think that's what I was thinking. Well, okay. okay. We'll call it with six weeks. Well, we were looking for things to do. So our thing to do was to go drive around because we couldn't connect with other people and go to just those kind of stands with the, the little coin box with the, yeah. the opening at the top of it. And we would go buy our cucumbers from the cucumber greenhouse because it was still early. It wasn't field harvest yet. And then we go to the tomato greenhouse and buy tomatoes and put money in that box. And then the strawberry greenhouse. So we made a whole <laughs> field trip out of buying like four types of produce, but just to get us out and around. That's a, a really local fun. culinary tour. Yeah. So I have one last question and I wanted to thank you for all your amazing, you know, chat. And I'm sure we can chat about food for hours on end. If you were to host an elaborate dinner party. I mean, you could share this question with Michael, but um, what would you make and who would you invite? Or who, would you get someone to cater it? Is there someone like that you were like, I don't want to cook anymore. We're going to get this person to cater it. Oh, no, no, no. We would totally okay. cook. I thought so. We Just checking. Together. Yeah. It would depend on the time of year. But if we're entertaining indoors and outdoors, there's probably a big roast in the oven like a prime rib roast that way i mean you've got that cornerstone to your meal established and then michael's rule if we're doing a plated dinner is you always start the first course with something cold because mm -hmm. you can plate it you have it's the first course so nothing else you're you can focus your attention and that's where you get elaborate and put lots of moves on the plate you impress everybody and then you can move into a more casual approach. Oh, wow. But we tend to end up having people in the kitchen because we have a kitchen island, just like your setup behind you. So people can hang out while oh, you you're cook. putting meals yeah. together. Uh, and then once our dining room faces our kitchen. So then we're never, even if we're in the kitchen assembling or put, pulling dishes together, we're never disconnected from our guests. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. But it could be. It just it. It, it will not be a complicated meal. So say it's a, a prime rib roast this time of year. We would probably do either just simple crispy roast potatoes, could do a Yorkshire pudding or a nice cheesy gratin. Mm. Potatoes dauphinoise would be beautiful. Do you... We do love our fish and seafood. So to bring in oysters or do a, a shrimp cocktail idea is, is always I like that. fun. So we tend to go more old school because we like spending time in France and then as you know, m most people who go for sh chef training are learning French method. It's the French brigade, French technique. It's the Escoffier sauce list. Yeah. So we still kind of default to French techniques. So we might do steak Diane or tartare or, but yeah, we tend to go for French classics. And then I always do two desserts. It's never Ooh, one. Ooh, I like that rule. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to try that. Yeah. <laughs> So what would you do for Even, a, a like, fall dessert, a nice autumnal dessert? 
Oh, you can't go wrong with a good tart tatin. Mm, yes. So simple. Oh, Upside down, caramelize. And then I slow caramelize the apples without the pastry. I cook them for half an hour without the pastry. Once I get the sugar going, then I put the pastry on. Because I find out if you do put the pastry on too soon, it steams yeah. the pastry. And then it doesn't become crisp. Oh my gosh. And then it allows the apples to really collapse. I feel like I need oh. to make that tonight. Oh, I haven't had that in so Wait. long. Okay, let's both make okay, that tonight. Okay, we'll send each other photos. Okay, well, I'm going to add some of your links and all your, if you want to send any recipes or like the Tarte Ten, I can add that in the show notes. But I just wanted to say a big thank you. You've done so much for women in food. You've done so much for female chefs in the industry, in the cookbook world. You are such an inspiration to me. I've followed you for so many years and I've been lucky to have you in my my classroom and kind of meeting you and, and Lisa, who's amazing. So I just wanted to say a big thank you. And I'm sure you you hear this all the time, but you've done so much for people and you make people happy with food. And I think food is such a key to to bringing people together and providing joy. So I'm so happy we had this time to chat and if you have any closing words you want to say to anyone listening about food or what they should pursue for their next, you know, culinary adventures, just, yeah, go ahead. Well, thank you for having me. And it's been wonderful to chat. I feel like this has been in person and we should just have a cup of tea. Yeah, I know. Next time and, we'll do it in person. Yeah. And I will. And I think we're not the only ones who should make an apple tarte tatin. I think everybody, everybody who's listening tonight. should stand yes. on that and just. Treasure in its simplicity. Sugar, apples, a little butter, and puff pastry. And you just can get the puff pastry out of your local grocery stores. Make it so easy. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm going to get on to my recipe making. Well, thanks, and Have a wonderful afternoon. I'm sure you've got lots of fun food stuff to do. Always something on the go. We will see you and on all your different channels. And, and on find, if I miss you, I will look at the cookbooks on my shelf. And uh <laughs> I hope to see you in person soon. All right. I look forward to it, okay. Lisa. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anna. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of Culinary Chronicles Made with Love. Before you go, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. For more information on the show, visit ladolching.com. And for more behind the scenes, follow me on Instagram at Lisa Sanguadolce.